Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we'll be talking about two weeks worth of Come Follow Me. Doctrine and Covenants 6 through 9, then Doctrine and Covenants 10 through 11. Woo! Lots of content! Yeah. Basically, section 6 is regarding Oliver Cowdery as a scribe to Joseph Smith in assisting the translation of the Book of Mormon. Section 7 is about John the Beloved and whether or not he died. Spoiler alert, he didn't die. (laughs) (laughs) Section 8 is about Oliver's request to have the gift of translation and his request for revelation. Section 9, Oliver is told to be patient and not translate for now. Um, we'll get into that. Section 10, uh, in my notes I wrote, LOL, back to Martin Harris and the 116 pages. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, section 11, I wrote, basically Joseph's tarot reading for his bro, LOL. Joseph is getting a revelation on behalf of his brother. Okay, great. So, (laughs) since it's right at the beginning of the reading... Section 6, do you want to go into verse 37? Yes. Verse 37 is so amazing. So in my personal scriptures, I have really brightly highlighted verse 32 through 37. That whole section is really great. It's just testifying where two or three are gathered in my name. There will I be. Fear not, little flock, do good. Like, it's just a really comforting set of, like, we'll do it together, and this is a holy work. It's, like, really building up the servants of God. Mm -hmm. Verse 37 says, Behold the wounds which pierced my sides, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So after all this comforting words about how all the good you're doing as missionaries, as bringing forth the gospel, it directs the attention back to Christ's body and saying, behold, what I've done for you. Here's the evidence in my body. Mm -hmm. Go forth and do good. Be faithful. It's kind of out of nowhere that he directs attention to his body. Yeah. He's a perfect resurrected being. And here he is with these scars. Yeah. Let me get into this before I kind of get into why I want to talk about this. Doctrine and Covenants 7 talks about John the Beloved and how he never passed away. Doctrine and Covenants 9.14 talks about how when you're resurrected, not a hair shall be lost. So it's talking (laughs) about bodies and resurrections, like subtly in these verses, because mostly it's talking about Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith and Hiram and the 116 pages, but there's subtle little notes about the body and about resurrection. So I'm realizing every single episode we have, we talk about another podcast that we love (laughs) and we'll keep referring back to them because they really are great. Derek from Beyond the Block directed us to this book that is a pretty big book in the theory of connecting religion to disability. Uh, It's called The Disabled God. And it points out that when Christ was resurrected and perfected, his scars were left behind. That was him coming forth as a perfect being. He still was scarred. Mm -hmm. In our church, we kind of talk about that really briefly. Like I've had a couple lessons where it briefly mentions, oh, it was to show what he had done for the people. Like it proved that it was the same Jesus Christ and that he had just atoned for us and that he was resurrected in that body. In The Disabled God, the book, it says, at the resurrection, the, dis- the disciples understood the person Jesus for who he really was. Only through the lens of resurrection could they understand the meaning and significance of the life of Jesus on earth. In the resurrected Jesus Christ, they saw not the suffering servant for whom the last and most important word was tragedy and sin, but the disabled God who embodied both impaired hands and feet and a pierced side. Paradoxically, in the very act, commonly understood as the transcendence of physical life, God is revealed as tangible, 
bearing the representation of the body reshaped by injustice and sin into the fullness of the Godhead. Here is the resurrected Christ making good on the incarnational proclamation that God would be with us, embodied as we are, incorporating the fullness of human contingency and ordinary life into God. In presenting his impaired hands and feet to his startled friends, the resurrected Jesus is revealed as the disabled God. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, calls for his frightened companions to recognize in the marks of impairment in their own connection with God, their own salvation. In so doing, this disabled God is also the revealer of a new humanity. The disabled God is not only the one from heaven, but the revelation of true personhood, underscoring the reality that the full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability. I think it's interesting because kind of like what we were talking about last week, some people, um, even some people with disabilities, fully expect to be able-bodied in the resurrection. I don't know. I've had conflicting feelings about it. And I think the point where I'm at right now, and I've probably mentioned this before, is I wouldn't say I love my cataplexy, but it's an integral part of me. And I would feel, I don't know, it just feels like I am wholly myself, um, Mm -hmm. even though it is frustrating at times when I can't access things or when I can't participate in things. Yeah. And that speaks to how disability really should be pointed out as neutral. Like we've said multiple times, it's become a part of you. And when you see that as a disabled person, it's really in a strange way comforting. I feel like it's so forced Mm -hmm. down our throats in society that it's the worst thing that can happen to you is if you lose the function of your legs or if you become disabled in whatever Mm -hmm. way. And it's not true. So I'm glad you pointed that out, your experience about how you're not sure if you will be resurrected without cataplexy. It talks about that subtly in these verses. So section seven, it's talking about, uh, you kind of mentioned Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had questions about John the Beloved on if he was translated to heaven or if he tarried in the flesh, if he stayed on earth. And it starts out by saying, And the Lord said unto me, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? And then he says, I want to stay on earth and teach people about the gospel and still bring forth your word and bless people's lives. And God grants that desire. In a way, that breaks the rules a little bit. That's Mm -hmm. not supposed to be our experience of mortality on earth. We come here, we experience things. And then we die. And that's the plan of salvation. But there's a little loophole that God gave John the Beloved. And it was 100% according to his desires. Like John's the one that said, this is what I want. And God said, okay, I'll grant it to you. And when I was reading this, I was thinking about you and your thoughts on the resurrection and if our bodies will be perfected. But this was a kind of disruption in the plan of salvation for John. (laughs) According to his desires. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel yeah. like maybe some people see this as a stretch, but I feel like there is something to that. Christ, when he was resurrected, he wasn't perfected in the way that we imagine us, that we will be resurrected and perfected. John the Beloved, according to his desires, his body wasn't made perfected and he wasn't, you know, he didn't die like the normal plan of salvation would say that should happen. So I believe that there's the plan of salvation and what will happen to our resurrected bodies. But according to our desires, there can be changes along the way. I believe if a disabled person gets to heaven and they say, I've lived my whole life this way and I found value in it. And I believe that this is me. It's possible that God would work with that and grant that he's a God of accommodations, as we've seen. And Mm -hmm. would heaven not have accommodations so people could still exist as their true disabled selves in heaven? Of course God would have accommodations. He's had accommodations throughout the history of the earth. (laughs) We've seen that. So yeah, it's totally possible. And there's little tiny evidences that it has already happened. I mean, Christ is a huge evidence that it's already happened. It's infrequent, but it's happened. So 
who's to say that it's going to be the same for every single person when they die, that everyone will be completely perfected and that all things will be, you know, all scars will be removed and all disabilities will be taken away. Who's to say that? People say that. People assume that partially because they're able-bodied or at least they've internalized that and they just cannot fathom. I think part of the reason someone might say it's a stretch is just because of that internalized ableism that's rampant in our culture. Not only that, but people just want to be perfect. Like there's definitely a culture of perfectionism in the church and people just thinking they can earn their way to heaven. And then once they do, then they get rewarded with all these things. Mm-hmm. One of those rewards they consider to be a perfect body and their definition of perfection is this white, able-bodied, cisgendered body that conforms and, and affirms everything that white supremacy is, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh, you just nailed it. You totally nailed it. Because it is a promise that we will be resurrected and quote-unquote perfected. But what does that mean? If we say disability mm-hmm. is imperfect, then we're saying Christ was imperfect when he was resurrected because he had a quote-unquote disabled body through the scars and the injustices that he suffered, that was still a part of him when he was resurrected. So yeah, I believe that it is completely true and every person will be resurrected and perfected. But what I think our definition of that is maybe ableist, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's according to our understandings of what society says is perfect right now. So it's not, I don't think it'll be the same for every person. I I think that there will be able-bodied people in heaven. I'm not saying like, we're all going to be disabled when we get to heaven. (laughs) But I believe that it'll look different for different people because Christ administers to us personally and Christ loves us and knows us personally. And that doesn't get tossed out when we get resurrected and when we get to heaven. I think that we will be glorified and that we will become more than what we are on earth, which we can't understand right now. But I think that when we teach that and when we learn about that, we throw out all these things that we see on earth as imperfect. It shows our lack of compassion and our lack of understanding of other people and how everyone is involved in the gospel to say, this is what perfect is and this is what we will become. And that idea excludes certain groups of people that currently exist on earth for a reason Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean I'm kind of going on but man this is like just mind-blowing it just I know that prophets throughout time have been imperfect and I think yes they look to God and they receive revelations from God but they're affected by culture too and it's blowing my mind that how acceptable it is in society throughout time to be racist to be ableist that is shown Mm -hmm. through how we learn about what perfection is and what resurrection is it still is shown and there's little tiny like i've said before there's little tiny examples that show the norm has been broken and what we think is going to happen may not be exactly what's going to happen i love that and i'm so i feel so good about it and i hope other people can feel confident in that that there isn't just a perfect way to be Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, James and Derek talk about this, I think, in one of their, like, within the last three episodes, about how there's more iterations to the plan of salvation than we generally assume and talk about in the church. If you're going to say that the plan of salvation is inclusive of everyone, then each person needs to have their own plan of salvation that works for them and their identity. Like, let's think about our trans siblings or our siblings who are non-binary, I think at first glance, and they talk about this more in depth than we probably are going to right now, but the plan of salvation for so long has been taught by this cisgendered white American norm, and people have looked at it and said, I don't know where I fit in here. It has been the cause of a lot of people turning away from the church because they just Not only do they feel like they're not accepted at church, but they feel like they don't even have an eternal future. And I, I feel that. that's devastating. This is going to sound really weird. One of the biggest faith crises I had as an adult was when I was fake married to my fake ex-husband 
um, and I say that because I got an annulment, so it was legally invalidated. I would be sitting in Relief Society thinking about the plan of salvation and everybody talking about how happy they were to be sealed to their husbands and just how fulfilling it was for them. I would just be sitting there thinking like, I don't want this, you know, like what does the gospel offer me if I don't want to be with this man for eternity, you know? Mm, And if you take away like the hope of being sealed to a partner that you love, then there's not really any point to living all the commandments. There's not really like, what's the point of it all? The point of it all is to be exalted with our families and with our loved ones. But if, if, if you can't have that, or if you do have that and it just feels false or it doesn't bring you joy, then I can see why people leave the church because it, there's nothing for them to look forward to eternally. Yeah, and I feel like I've heard it talked about in church a couple times about how if my spouse dies and I remarry, who will I be married to in the eternities? And people say, God will work it out. God knows everything. He has a perfect Uh plan. Things will work out according to how they're supposed to work out. But then we don't think about that with disabled people. LGBTQ people, Mm -hmm. people that are like in a situation like you were in with a marriage that wasn't healthy. We have a lot of peace in the fact that God will work things out and he knows all. But then we fail to show people that every single person has involvement in the plan of salvation and that it is personal to them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. um, Forget to mention or deliberately ignore because it makes people uncomfortable yeah um, that's, that's true the too. way I think it is but going back to to doctrine and covenants we see in section seven <laughs> the Lord even says and he's talking to Peter if I will that he tarry he meaning John the beloved till I come what is that to thee for he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me but thou desirest that thou might mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom in verse 8, he says, Verily I say unto you, ye shall both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. So I think it really is, what will we desire? I don't want to say this in a way that like, oh, God will work everything out and just kind of a cop out evasive question, which I feel like I've gotten a lot in the church. I don't want people to, to think of it that way. I want to give people comfort that our desires ultimately shape our experience of heaven and that there is scriptural evidence for it. Even if you have to sometimes look really hard or read between the lines because the lines themselves are just this heteronormative, um, able-bodied white view, but they're still there. Yeah. We have to, to treasure the little moments like that that we have in the scriptures because Otherwise, I think it's easy to spiral and just throw it all out. Yeah. Back to that reading, the disabled God, it says this view of Jesus Christ as the disabled God creates new symbols and rituals whereby people with disabilities can affirm our bodies in dignity and reconceive the church as a community of justice for people with disabilities. So yeah, when we bring in these new perspectives of things that we don't normally teach in church, but are there in the scriptures and happened, Mm -hmm. it makes it a space for people to thrive that are different, that would sometimes maybe feel excluded. There in the scriptures, it's just not there in the culture yet. So hopefully that'll change and we'll do our best to help that to change. I mean, I agree. Sometimes I get annoyed by just blaming it all on the culture because the culture is really just the people interpreting the doctrine in a certain way. Anyway, I thought section 6, verse 2, where it says that the word of the Lord is sharper than a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of both bone and marrow. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. The word of God is going to cut your flesh. (laughs) I looked it up and it's a reference to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 on BibleRef.com, it says that the imagery used here in Hebrews is popular but easily misunderstood. The Greek word translated sword is, oh, I'm going to butcher this, machairon, 
often used generically for a sword or a dagger in the New Testament. However, the same word's also used to describe the blade wielded by Peter in Gethsemane, that's John chapter 18, verse 10. To modern eyes, Peter's weapon was less of a soldier's sword and more of a large fisherman's knife. In fact, a fisherman's macharin macharin was primarily meant for cutting flesh. Unlike true military swords, which were tougher but less razor sharp, Either way, this perspective makes the metaphor of the verse all the more vivid. The sword is said to separate the joints and marrow, probably a reference to tendons, ligaments, and other meaty parts. These are from the Greek words harmon and mielon. You're putting a Russian accent on it. (laughs) I'm sorry. Actually, when I first started learning Russian, they told me I had a Spanish accent because I grew up speaking Spanish with my mom. When I try to speak Spanish, they tell me I have a Russian accent. So (laughs) apparently I just have Russian accent everywhere I talk. I'm sorry. It will happen. Sometimes I read my scriptures in a Russian accent because it's fun. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, going back to the cutting of the flesh. These tissues are hidden away, hard to reach, and seemingly indistinguishable. A sharp blade, such as a maharin, can uncover and separate these things. In the same way, the word of God can even separate spiritual things which seem completely intertwined, such as the soul and the spirit. I thought that was interesting. Like, why do you think they use this metaphor? What is the flesh that we're separating here? I'm I'm reading it again. I'm thinking maybe it's discerning truth from falsehoods. Yeah. Or God can separate that for us with the spirit. That's my guess. What what were you thinking? Yeah, similarly, there's so many things that come out of the mouths of the prophets and apostles and general authorities and it's oftentimes It's an exercise in logic and spirit to figure out what's from God, what's true for you, and what's not. It'd be kind of cool to have a little sword that you could just stick in the words that they're saying and uncover the right ones. Yeah, that shows the importance of personal revelation. And it talks about personal revelation a ton in these sections. Come follow me points that out. I guess I wanted to talk about uh, verse 10, which I need to, I want to actually read it. Well, can you read verse 10 really quick? Remember that without faith, you can do nothing. Therefore, ask in faith, trifle not with these things. Do not ask for that which you ought not. I actually wanted to talk about that verse too, but you go first. Okay. (laughs) I'm glad that you like caught that. I think this is interesting because I think a lot of times people tell people with disabilities or our minds just working a different way that, oh, you can overcome it if you just have more faith. Through faith, you can do everything. But that is actually a logical fallacy, okay? You can thank my philosophy professor at BYU-Idaho who severely messed up my ability to read the scriptures because I just found fallacies in them all the time. (laughs) Anyway, in this, there's a clear causal statement. If you have no faith, then you can do nothing, okay? What's happening when people are saying, if you have faith, then you can do everything, that is, um, they're mixing up the antecedent. So that's, that's the logical fallacy of denying the antecedent. So basically, if you want to reverse that statement, you have to deny the consequent first. And this is logical stuff. It's basically math with, with words, which is, Serena's heaven. Oh my gosh. So right now we have the two no's, right? No faith, then do nothing. So if you want to see what happens without the no's, you have to start from the end. You have to deny the consequent. So if you say do nothing, denying that would be doing something. And you put that in the antecedent. Basically, the inverse of that is if something happened, then there was faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm following you. Which is the opposite, right? Well, not the opposite. It's like switching it. and It's, it's switching it. It's supposed to be the pe- same logic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By saying, if you have no faith, then you can do nothing, is the same logical statement as, if something happened, then you had faith. That shows you had faith. So I have kind of a funny metaphor. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Um, so basically... What this is saying, what verse 10 is saying is just because something didn't happen doesn't mean you didn't have faith. For example, 
Um, if you had pooped, you must have eaten something. But just because you didn't poop yet doesn't mean you didn't eat anything. But if you don't eat anything at all, you won't poop. Miracles are the poop. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, okay, I, this is the first logical equivalent I could come up with, and it's not a perfect metaphor, but you can see the logic, right? If you have no faith, so if you do not eat anything, then nothing will happen. Then you will not poop, right? The inverse of that is if you poop, then you must have eaten. You need to have faith slash eat to get results at all, but it doesn't guarantee results, miracles, poop within a certain time period. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. What do you mean within a time period? When I'm talking about time period, I'm saying I feel like a lot of times people say, if you have faith, then you'll be healed, right? Mm -hmm. When we say that we'll be healed, we have this expectation that it's going to happen within a certain time period, right? Either today, tomorrow, within a couple of weeks, within a year, or within our lifetimes. If you have faith, then you'll be healed. Let's say I expected to be healed within two weeks, and then that time passes, and then it didn't happen. And I say, I don't understand. I had faith. Why did it not happen? Mm -hmm. The equivalent is if you eat, you're going to poop. But I mean, like I said, not a perfect metaphor because they're biological systems. But anyway, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen within a specific time period, right? Like, but just because you didn't poop within a specific time period doesn't mean you didn't eat. You could have still eaten. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. I think this is really important when we're talking about miracles and healing, faith crises, and our expectations because faith crises come in the gospel because of mixing up these expectations. I don't know. I think miracles and faith, blessings and promises are, are something that's really fascinating to me just because of my personal life experiences. And also there's a lot of instances in the scriptures and people at general conference misinterpreting this and denying the antecedent and basically saying, if you have faith, then this will happen. No, it's not, it might not happen. But if a blessing happened, that means you had faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion there because of the will of God, right? There's like also that other factor if oh, you yeah, have faith that, that something, that, thing. that oh my gosh. God thing. <laughs> yeah, I if you if you have faith that this will happen according to the will of God, then it'll happen. But how do you know the will of God? You know, like you kind of. I feel like the will of God is always hindsight. Like, oh, that was the will of God, and that's why it happened. But yeah. you are encouraged to exercise faith to bring about miracles. It's a little confusing, and I think that uh, it gets jumbled up a lot when we share stories about miracles that happened, and it kind of makes other people feel like, well, I have faith, and this miracle didn't happen in my life, you know? Yeah. It gets a little confusing. Which is why I, I wanted to point that out, because mm -hmm. it's just to comfort people who feel like I had faith, but nothing happened. Well, if you don't have faith at all, then for sure nothing will happen, but if you have faith something might happen. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Just to point out, you might as well have faith because faith is required. It's a necessary requirement for a miracle, but it's not sufficient. That's what I should have pointed out earlier. The logical, this is a, an important thing in logic when you're talking about necessary requirements and sufficient requirements. Faith is necessary, but it might not be all that is needed. So if something didn't happen, it doesn't mean that you didn't have faith because it's still necessary. It just means that it wasn't enough. Outside factors, will of God, etc. People's agency. Whereas if something happened, that's sufficient to indicate you had faith. Oh, I see. That statement is still truth. It's just lacking more information that could bring more insight to how faith actually works and how God actually yeah. works. Yeah. I think, I mean, either we can rephrase it to make it clearer or we can just start teaching logic in Sunday school, which I'm down for the latter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like it comes in spurts, but it's not every lesson. And that's why there can be disconnections in people's heads of like, yeah. how does this system actually work? How do I, how do I bring about miracles yeah. in my life according to the will of God? You know what I mean? Yeah. So again, there's like 
kind of like a, a we see a norm and the norm is broken at times. Yes. The faithful statement of that is like, honestly, the Lord knows every person and he knows what we need. And it's really cool to see how he can bring about miracles to help other people through people who don't have faith. Like Alma the Younger didn't have faith at all. He still saw an angel and brought about a miracle in his life. He was still aware of Alma and still worked a miracle in his life. Yeah. I wanted to talk about actually section six. If you thrust in your sickle and reap, then your call of God. That's section six, verse four. But in section four, verse three, which we actually didn't talk about when we covered sections three through five because we were covering so many other things, it says that if you have desires to serve your call of God. So these two statements seem kind of contradictory because what if you have the desire but not the physical ability to serve? Yeah, there's actually, it talks about it again. Doctrine and Covenants 11, in verse 15, Behold, I command you that ye need not suppose that ye are called to preach until you are called. Wait a little longer until you shall have my word, my rock, my church, and my gospel, that ye may know of a surety of my doctrine. And then, behold, according to your desires, yea, even according to your faith, shall it be done unto you. So yeah, that talks about being called to it according to your desires, but you have to wait until God calls you. Uh. I don't know. I think, like, if you, maybe, maybe let's not get into the logic here since I. (laughs) Well, I think this section clarifies it a little bit better because this one says, don't suppose you're called, wait a little longer, learn the word, and then according to your desires and faith, you shall be called. So this one's saying you need to have the knowledge base and faith before you are called. This one makes a little more sense. Well, and plus we have to consider that Section four was given to Joseph's father, and that section that you're reading, I think it was talking to Oliver Cowdery, right? Uh, it's talking to Hiram, Joseph's oh, brother. Hiram. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, yeah, I'm talking to different people, so I guess we can look at the discrepancy that way. Like, oh. all that Joseph's father needed was the desire, but Hiram needed to do more work. I don't know if you want to do a whole episode regarding our mission experiences but this just kind of made me think of my attempts to go on a mission and it being blocked by the church structure telling me that I was not physically able to I took a lot of comfort in these sections in sections four and six etc at that time because I felt like I had that desire Mm -hmm. God had called me but the church was interfering with that and that was that was a hard thing for me. Mm, wow. I love that you pointed out that it's speaking to different people because it's true. Like we've been saying this whole time, God administers according to people's needs. Miracles happen so differently in people's lives. And it's not to say that you were less worthy of a miracle. That's not true at all. Yeah. It's just what the Lord knows that you need in your life. I still have an issue with that. I just... I honestly think it's just the church structure itself was ableist and not considering the accommodations that were actually pretty easy for me to serve. You're right there, because even Caesar mentioned his experience with being told he couldn't serve a mission. That was before service missions existed. So there's this whole nother avenue where so many people can serve that wasn't open before. That doesn't mean that the disabled people before weren't worthy of serving a mission, you know? Yeah. Caesar was told he was honorably excused from a mission, but I find it problematic that the bishop didn't even try to submit his papers and plead his case and try to figure out what accommodations could have happened to help Caesar serve. And I know he sees it differently, and he's seen wonderful things come about in his life through the experiences he's had because of that experience. So I don't want to take that away from him. But... To this day, I feel like the church doesn't have a good system for sending people with disabilities on missions. I think they're getting better, but there's still, we really do need to do a whole episode on this because some people (laughs) I'm sure are like, what are you, what are you saying? You know, but there's so many issues with how the church sends people with disabilities on missions and how they deem people with disabilities able to serve or unable to serve. Yeah, I guess... All I'm going to say about that now then is we have 
lots of feelings about this, and uh, we want to do it justice, so little bonus treat for you. We're going to make a whole episode for it, and <laughs> you can listen to us vomiting our emotions in that episode. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure that people knew that we're not ignoring that, especially with how missionary section four is and how section six is kind of quoting that as well. Another thing that I noticed, the more I read the scriptures and think about disability and ableism, the more I'm realizing I I think there are still gaps in my knowledge, but I do believe that God is not ableist. And I was thinking about that while I was reading the section. Section 11, verse 29, it kind of describes God as the God of outcasts and the forgotten. It says, I am the same who came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. Section 10, verse 4 talks about, like, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength. Yes. There's a lot that we can pull from section 8, verse 10, without faith you can do nothing. Something I thought about it was, God's not saying without arms you can do nothing, without, you know, being neurotypical you can do nothing. The biggest lack that would affect what they can do is faith. And that's something that anyone can access despite disability. I thought that that was cool too. Also with the idea of God is not ableist, we kind of talked about before how God makes accommodations. Come Mm -hmm. Follow Me goes back to the 116 pages and it says, more than 2,400 years in advance, the Lord prepared to compensate for the lost pages of the Book of Mormon. God made an accommodation. He knew that this would happen and an accommodation was made. Doctrine and Covenants 11.9 says, Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. And even the existence of repentance, period, is an accommodation. The Lord wants us to Mm -hmm. live a perfect life, and we're mortals, and we can't do it without repentance and forgiveness. And that's the Lord making an accommodation for us to be perfected and have a chance in the plan of salvation, in this mortal life. Accommodations are a holy thing, and I love seeing that in the scriptures. Yeah. So another thing that I wanted to point out is in section eight regarding Oliver's request for revelation. God tells him, yea, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. And that actually reminded me of a talk that Elder Holland gave called Cast Not Away Therefore Your Confidence. It's a BYU speech, and I have found a lot of comfort in this talk through the years. He asks, why would the Lord use the example of crossing the Red Sea as a classic example of the spirit of revelation? Why didn't he use the first vision, etc.? It seems like a clear example of a miracle. And he says, usually we think of revelation as information. It almost always comes as a response to an urgent question. The third lesson that he talks about, he goes in depth on this, that along with the illuminating revelation that points us toward a righteous purpose or duty, God will also provide the means and power to achieve that purpose. Trust in that eternal truth. If God has told you something is right, if something is indeed true for you, He will provide the way for you to accomplish it. This is especially pertinent to people with disabilities because we a lot of times feel like there's no way for us to continue, at least within the traditional bounds. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize what God was doing here with Moses and opening up the Red Sea. That was an accommodation. That was a changing of the situation as a response to the physical predicament that Moses and the children of Israel were in and their urgent need. A lot of times we have an urgent need either to understand something or to physically do something. We have an urgent need. And I'm not saying that God will heal us or magically pave the way, but I'm saying that we can look at accommodations, whether that be a wheelchair or other mobility devices, a translation device or an interpreter or a service dog, etc. We can look at these as examples of revelation because they're given to us 
to accomplish the purpose that the divine have sent us to do. And I find it really comforting to look at all the different ways we can accomplish things and we can be creative about it. It's not to say that you will accomplish it for sure in the way that is traditional, but you can receive blessings that you thought were not possible when you have the right accommodations. Yeah. And so we should celebrate that. We should encourage people to use the accommodations that they have available and to ask them what accommodations they need and to trust in your own authority when it comes to what you need. As Elder Holland talks about, you may, like Alma going to Ammonihah, have to find a route that leads an unusual way, but that is exactly what the Lord was doing here for the children of Israel. Nobody had ever crossed the Red Sea this way, but so what? There's always a first time. With the spirit of revelation, dismiss your fears and wade in with both feet. Regardless of the possibly ableist metaphor of wading in with both feet, because that's sometimes not physically possible, the point is, it is okay to have an untraditional route, it is okay to have accommodations, it is okay to go about your life spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally in a way that is not the same as the people around you, or is not what you expected, and that, my dears is called revelation. Yeah. I like viewing that as an accommodation. I like viewing repentance and God speaking to Nephi and telling him to rewrite this stuff. I like viewing that as accommodations, but part of me is just kind of like, the accommodations are only needed because you have stringent standards that are not matching up with reality. You know what I mean? Our reality on earth. Yeah. Yeah, like you talked about perfection because we can't be perfect. Okay, well then why do we, why are we even expected to be perfect? As someone, and I'm just going to put this out there for anyone who's listening who's not Mormon or used to be Mormon, but is a little bit more cynical now, just a plug for us cynics out there. It almost seems manipulative for God to know that this would happen make accommodations for it, and then get mad at people for messing up anyway and blaming them for it. Well, that's the hard thing, because ultimately, like, I believe, and you can believe differently, I think the manipulative thing would have been to be to take away their agency and say, well, I'm not going to let this happen, you know? True. Like, in section 11, or 10, excuse me, it talks about how these people are conspiring against you, they're going to change the translation and make it seem like you were wrong and you're a fraud. I, in my head, I'm reading this and I'm like, God has the power to destroy these pages that are out there that people are trying to change and defraud Joseph. He has the power to destroy them. If he wanted to, he could make a fire mm-hmm. happen and make them go away, but he didn't. Agency still had to happen. And then they made the wrong choice and were trying to undermine the work of salvation that Joseph was trying to bring about. That's my view. God honors agency and there are things that are right and wrong. They were trying to make Joseph seem like a fraud, which would have been obviously incredibly problematic for the restoration to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. I mean, there's definitely a discussion there. We're imperfect, so casting judgments is going to be imperfect coming from us. Yeah, I guess with the Garden of Eden and Eve and Satan, we look at Satan in that instance as the antagonist, but our doctrine also teaches that there's opposition in all things, right? So what would God have done if Satan weren't rebelling, if Satan wasn't doing that? Then there would be no opposition. And I think it's kind of weird that we don't acknowledge that with how integral the opposition is. And instead we just kind of vilify it and cast it out and then take all the credit for it turning out correctly. Because, oh, I knew that Satan would tempt Eve or I knew that Lucy Harris was going to conspire to get this, get the pages, you know, like, okay, well, then if you knew that you should thank them because this is what helped you get to this place where you are now. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's interesting. That's always kind of bothered me. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. I think, like, God knows the beginning from the end, but there are 
bad things that have to happen to bring about good things in a way. Ugh. I then, don't know. then let's then let's rejoice in the bad things then you know like stop vilifying people for playing their part in these in these stories that we tell ourselves you know like yeah I, I, I guess I just want to point that out that without this opposition none of this would happen and even if the scriptures or the prophets or God is not going to acknowledge it I'm going to acknowledge it and say thank you to Lucy Harris, and thank you to Eve, because without that, there wouldn't be opposition and there wouldn't be growth. I think there is a problem when we vilify people, right? I think there's been a better, like, the way that the videos changed in the temple, it was a better view on Eve making a conscious decision, not being, you know, silly and being tricked or being evil, yeah. and she was trying to bring Adam down like she made a conscious decision and it had to happen for the plan of salvation to happen so i guess in church we need to be more careful about judging others when it's not our place to judge that's clear in the scriptures it's not our place to judge yeah actually sisters in zion do you follow them yes yeah so they made a video this week about how it's ironic that we say the woman that was taken in adultery and in that same story it's a story about how, like, don't cast stones. It's about not judging people and how we're all sinners. God is ultimately the judge of sinners, but Christ is the one that forgives openly and says, all of you are sinners, don't judge this woman. But when we reference the story, we say the woman taken in adultery instead of mm -hmm. the woman that was left with Christ. Like, we identify her by her sin Whoa! while we're being told to not judge people. Yeah. So we do the same thing with Lucy Harris. We do the same thing sometimes with Eve. That's not our place. Yes. Going back to Doctrine and Covenants section 10, there's a whole bunch of verses in the middle of the section about the wickedness of the person to whom Joseph gave the papers. And I think I think it's funny because because it doesn't even say Martin's name. It just says that man call is so wicked, blah 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 blah. He's wicked because etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it's interesting that it didn't even mention Lucy. Martin is basically a proxy for Lucy Harris in this situation because he what what was he doing? He was just trying to comfort his wife. Really what happened is all these intersections between Lucy's mental health, possible disability, her feelings, desire to be included, etc., her paranoia. That's what happened, okay? And so I think it's interesting that Martin is this stand-in for Lucy and God is calling Martin wicked, but really like I don't think either Martin or Lucy were wicked in that sense. I think perhaps Lucy was cunning or just really desperate, um, but I don't think she's wicked for wanting to be included and validated. And it's just interesting how this section goes on and on about how wicked Martin is. Considering the context of last week's episode and how Joseph didn't ever mention that Lucy received a vision of the plates, like, I personally think this is Joseph's personal feelings getting all wrapped up in here and it's not actually from God. That's what I think because it just is not consistent with what we know about Lucy and the situation. And I don't think it's a wicked thing to try to seek for evidence. There's so many other ways this could have gone other than vilifying these people and calling Martin and Lucy by proxy wicked. I'm always going to take the side of the underdog. <laughs> well, gosh, section 1129, it's unfortunate that it doesn't go back and say, these people that were trying to work against Joseph and do the wrong thing, God still loves them. Christ is still their savior. They were still forgiven or, you know, whatever. They were still valuable to, to be on earth. Section 1129, I am the same who came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. God will still receive them in the afterlife, even though their actions were seen as wicked in them trying to undermine Joseph's work. It's a shame that it doesn't mention that and add in that fact that, like, we shouldn't vilify them for their actions because that's not our job. Yeah, really quickly, because that was kind of a tangent, but going back to ability and disability and 
neurodiversity 1063. I don't have my scriptures up. Can you read that really quick? Yeah. And this I do that I may establish my gospel that there may not be so much contentions. Yea, Satan doth stir up the hearts of the people to contention concerning the points of my doctrine. And in these things they do err, for they do rest the scriptures and do not understand them. Oh, Serena, good catch. <laughs> I, uh... I don't know if I'm going to go the direction that you're thinking I'm going to go, but um, oh, go for my it. question is, what does contention mean in this verse? Because as someone who consistently sees scripture and doctrine in a way that differs from the mainstream American Mormon church... A lot of times people will say that that's contending by talking about, oh, the scripture, you're interpreting it wrong, or, oh, if we add in this context, or, oh, if we apply this lens, people, I think a lot of times who just don't want to hear it, who don't want it, who want to shut down these alternative modes of thinking and don't want their supremacy to be challenged, I think they will use this and be like, oh, you're being contentious. You know, and I think we need to be cautious of that. I actually took, <laughs> I took conflict management three times in my degree. Don't ask. It's a long story. <laughs> but one thing that is super important from that is you cannot avoid conflict. You cannot avoid it. Um, and it's actually really unhealthy. It's an avoidance tactic to try to shut down conflict and say, oh, let's only say nice things. You know, like in Bambi, this is the example that the my textbook gave back in the day, like Bambi with Thumper. And Thumper says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say nothing at all. You know, like... <laughs> Like, and the book is like, the book, my textbook was like pretty savage. It was like, you know, this is wrong because you cannot always just say nice things because that runs contrary to truth. Sometimes there are things that are hard to hear and we're all human. We make mistakes. If I make a mistake on Facebook and people call me out on it, like that's hard to hear, but I need to like sit with that discomfort and work through that on my own you know that doesn't mean that the person shouldn't have called me out because because you can say like oh if you call someone out you're not being nice I think people use that all the time and I think it's just this pervasive toxic positivity that is really harmful to people who think differently and also harmful to people who feel differently whether they're neurodivergent um, or whether they're they have mental illnesses yeah, I just think that's dangerous and we need to be careful when we're applying verse 63 and really think about what contention is. Uh, like even if we look at the protests last year for racial justice, one of the biggest defenses that white people gave is that it wasn't nice. Like it's not nice for you to be doing all these different tactics to draw attention to the issue. Like, no, what isn't nice is for black people to be killed by police and by white supremacists and then there be no consequences. That's what isn't nice, mm -hmm. you know? Like, if there's no justice, there will be no peace. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think we need to uproot this culture of niceness above everything. I think this is a very white American thing. It's harmful to lots of marginalized communities. It's harmful to people with disabilities. It's harmful to women, it's harmful to people with neurodivergencies, it's harmful to black people, it's harmful to other people of color, it's harmful to the LGBTQ community because all of these communities are people who will challenge expected notions of what should be and whenever something is challenging, a lot of times this culture of niceness and whiteness will view it as you're causing contention and anything that differs from the norm that deviates is contention. We need to call that out for what it is and say just because you deviate, that does not mean that you're contentious or sometimes contention and conflict is actually a good thing because you cannot solve the problem through niceness. You have to get in deep and wrestle with it, like that verse says, and have some hard conversations. Yeah, so there's a phrase that's kind of tossed around a lot 
contention is of the devil, right? Yeah. I mean, so here's my thoughts on that. Questions are not of the devil. Involving people that are often outcasts is not of the devil. And I think it's confused if you ask a question and you bring up important thoughts, some people would jump to contention is of the devil. Don't do that. The contention that's being caused is you having, I'll use your word, a visceral reaction (laughs) to people just honestly trying to understand how they fit into the gospel or trying to include other people who don't easily fit into the church culture, into the gospel as we teach it. That's where contention is caused, and it's often misidentified as someone who brings up those questions that they're causing the contention. Say, if you question my privilege, then that brings contention to my heart. And that's the problem. Whereas that's Mm -hmm. not actually the problem. Do you know what I mean? I would go one step further and say, I think that feeling that people are pointing out, I think it's anger. I think people a lot of times will equate contention with anger. And Mm -hmm. if you're angry, then you're of the devil. I've had this in my life. We see this when People are vilifying Black Lives Matter advocates and protesters. They're angry, and so therefore we can dismiss their concerns. No. From a purely conflict management standpoint and psychological standpoint, you feel anger when there is injustice. Kind of like how we view disability as a neutral thing, I think we should view feelings as a neutral thing as well. Feelings in and of themselves are not bad. Anger is letting you know when something is contradicting your personal value system and it's your anger is the part of you that loves yourself i there's there's a quote i do not remember who said that but your anger is the part of you that that loves yourself and the part of you that loves other people and wants to see justice and fairness i would go so far as to say that not only are questions not of the devil but anger is not of the devil I love pointing out how Jesus got angry and different examples of righteous anger because I do think that it's it's an element of righteousness. It's an indication that something is wrong, mm-hmm. or at least that it has trespassed on your values. You know, mm-hmm. whether or not your values are centered in the right way is, is a whole different question, but that's what anger is. Mm-hmm. And if that's all that contention is, is just questions wrapped in anger because you want justice and understanding, then I don't think contention is of the devil if that's what how you're defining contention. Yeah, it. yeah, that's great. I love that. We had a Zoom meeting a couple months ago. It was led by the person that runs the mental health and therapy services at UVU. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of a thing that's like, how do I deal with coronavirus and my mental health and being in school? It was like just a discussion about that. And in that discussion, the person that was leading it, I don't know her name, but she's the one that leads the department at UVU for mental health services. So she said, we need to view emotion as pockets of information. And I love just that short, short simple <laughs> perspective but I'm like that's so cool like she's like no emotion is wrong you're feeling it for a reason and it comes to inform you of something like yes you're really really sad think about like okay what am I doing right now have I eaten what am I thinking about like it's information that you need to use to take some kind of action to help yourself Mm -hmm. or to help someone else. So I totally think the same way. I don't think anger is wrong. I think it's informative to point us towards something that needs to change. And it's seen, you're right, it's seen in different examples that we see of righteous anger. That's not wrong. That's, Mm -hmm. it's happening for some reason because of something that was happening that was wrong. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. There's a couple of Body metaphors in section 11 that are interesting. Verse 12, walk humbly. Verse 21, tongue loosed. Section 10, verse 4, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength. There's a lot of scriptures that say this, and I just want to point it out every time it happens because it's so contrary to the production mindset that we have in this country, and especially the Protestant work ethic and all this stuff in in Christianity as well. I think a lot of times people feel like they need to 
work until they expire. I just want people to notice this and sit with the fact that, at least in this verse, the divine is saying to not push yourself past your limits. And it's okay to have limits. Everybody has limits. We're human. Just be patient with yourself, especially when you have a disability. (laughs) Physically, you cannot do all the things in a day. You know, we have spoons, which we can talk about in like a vernacular or terminology episode. Um, But like you only have so many spoons slash bursts of energy a day. So it's just a matter of using them strategically. And how do we know what's strategic? You decide because it's your life. You are the authority on how you use your energy. Easier said than done, but don't let people guilt you (laughs) into not getting everything done within a certain time frame because your rest matters and you won't have any strength to continue if you constantly break your limits. Very true. Which is something we've seen as we've been working on this Oh my gosh, no kidding. Gosh dang. It's hard, but it's worth it. (laughs) That is the end of our episode, folks. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman. Patreon is patreon.com slash holyhuman. We've been having help from our friend Hannah for transcribing episodes. Thank you to her. And thank you to Matthew for creating our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesound.org. Thank you for joining us.